Vyasa. This afternoon we return to the meditative cultivation of compassion, and this time attending to the deepest dimension, the most subtle dimension of suffering, which pertains to our really existential vulnerability to suffering at all. To be concerned with that aspect of reality, frankly, at least from my perspective, makes sense if and only if you're very confident that there is continuity of individual consciousness after death. If you think it's very likely, if you're actually quite persuaded that death means total termination, then suffering, the end of suffering is just a waiting game. It, you just wait it out. You know, and you don't have to wait that long if you really want to. You can just bring the whole thing to an end pretty much any time you like. And so it's not that big a deal. Just wait it out. Try to have a good time, and that'll be all over. No more problems. And so Gautama, young Gautama, when he left his home, his very happy home, the first thing he did, as you may recall, is seek out first one and then a second extraordinarily accomplished samadhi master. Being the samadhi prodigy, prodigy that he was, he very rapidly achieved the same states of samadhi. If he wasn't utterly convinced that there was continuity of consciousness after death, I think he really must have been, he should have been, absolutely should have been, satisfied. Because he can now, he's let alone shamatha, he's achieved all of the jhanas, achieved all the samapatis, the absorptions, he could have bliss at the drop of a hat, he could stay there as long as he liked. So, and I think it took him only, what, a matter of weeks? Maybe months on the outside, it was very, very fast. So, he really should have gone off, achieved samadhi, when these two teachers, one after another, said, please come and teach with me, you're amazing, you achieve these states of samadhi so quickly. He could have said, well, thanks, but no thanks. He should have headed home. He says, honey, I'm home. So, oh, you were away? <laughs> yeah, I went out and got some samadhi. I'm back. And now even if, you know, there's aging, sickness, and death, well, death is a termination. And while it's aging and sickness, well, I can always slip into samadhi whenever I like. So what's for dinner? You know, and, and that would have been it, really. That really would, I mean, what's the problem? Just wait it out and you can slip into bliss whenever you like to. I mean, that's really better than sex. You know, that's really good. So he must have had an extremely deep conviction that our problems do not simply terminate at death. There's something much deeper going on. And that samadhi, while it does give you some really significant respite or relief from the suffering of change, as your mind goes into the form realm, the formless realm, not ultimate release, but really something very significant. Because, oh, some of these yogis who achieved these extremely high states of samadhi, they thought they'd tapped into something permanent. Something unchanging, just it seemed to be beyond the realm of you know, this world of of flux. But remarkably, he was dissatisfied even with those extraordinary states of samadhi, and then set out, and then became the enlightened one years later. So when we attend to this dimension of suffering, and then in this whole spirit of compassion, arousing the wish that we, that others, that we may all be free of suffering on all levels, including our essential vulnerability to suffering, that we can turn that around and be forever free, 
then these words had enormous import, enormous weight. We're talking about eternity here, time without end. The stakes couldn't be higher, right? Do you want to suffer endlessly or do you want to be free endlessly? But either way is endless. Boy, if that's true, everything is different. Everything different. From this little kind of short story, this kind of poem approach to human existence that over. You know, that is it. It couldn't be it couldn't be more radically different. So by the ten, by the time we arouse or seek to arouse that level of compassion, I think it can be aroused authentically, if and only if there's some very deep wisdom, some very deep insight involved. Otherwise the wish would be rather thin, I think, rather vacuous, abstract. So what I'd like to do today before we go into the meditation would be to weave this into the question raised yesterday, I think it was by Kay, about pointing out instructions. Okay? Return to that a little bit. Because my words yesterday could be seen as a little bit discouraging. And that is when we think, people like Anela and Andrea and others of us who have been receiving teachings for 30, 40 years, and seeing how many of these extraordinary masters from Tibet, the two tutors of the Dalai Lama, Ling Rinpoche, Dr. Tijan Rinpoche, and the list goes on and on, from the color Rinpoche, I mean, just all these lamas we knew back in the 70s, almost all of them are gone. These were, these were like looking at the Himalayans, I mean, Himalayan peaks, just one peak after another, and they're almost all gone. And it's not so obvious that they're being replaced. When you say so, Anila, not so obvious. Difficult, difficult. There's really, even if you're an extraordinary Lama, a person like Dingo Kensei Rinpoche, or Ling Rinpoche, or what have you, when you come back, and they've been coming back as in our understanding, in the Buddhist understanding, time and again, each lifetime, they come back and they spend another 15, 20 years in retreat. You know, They don't get a little few years of training, do a three-year retreat, and then start teaching Westerners. You know, that's not how they became who they became. Dingo Kinsu Rinpoche, I think, 14 years. Kalu Rinpoche, 12 years. They're not just doing these formulaic three-year retreats one after another either. They're, they're launching. They're really going for it. And I've met so many yogis like this. Oh, again, Shambhawandu it again. Again, Lam Rimba, 25, 30 years. Again, oh, just one after another. So again, Tutopla. Oh. So, it could be a little bit, you know, it could be a little bit discouraging thinking, all right, if Dzogchen realization, that breakthrough, that pointing out instruction, in order to gain some realization of Rikpa, if this is dependent upon someone else giving you the pointing out instruction, and that someone else has to be really quite spectacular. A person who's not only learned the text and gone to Buddhist college and done a three-year retreat or maybe two three-year retreats, a person actually has is steeped in the realization and is speaking directly out of realization. If those people are really diminishing radically in number, then one can think, well, then maybe there's no chance for us. You know, Most of them don't speak English anyway. And then the, you need a really good interpreter. Do you, do you really want to receive those teachings by way of an interpreter? That interpreter better be pretty darn good. So, there's another avenue. And I was reminded of this. I knew it before, but it became really clear last night when I was listening to and watching these teachings that I received five, five, six years ago from Yantanabhaji on a text called The Flight of the Garuda by Shapkar. Shapkar, another great Sochin master, a few centuries ago. And the words were actually very encouraging. And the text is clear, but then Yantuna, which is his, his explanation also just 
you couldn't miss the meaning. You couldn't miss the meaning. It was just so, boom, there it is, in the palm of your hand. And Shapkar Rinpoche, Yandra Rinpoche, in the commentary, was saying, you know, this isn't that hard. Don't tell me, he was basically saying, don't tell me you can't do it. That is, meditating on Rikpa. Don't tell me you can't do it. Don't tell me you can't. And he would say, what do, you, what do you need to focus on? Just focus on the, and it's called seltong, the luminosity or the, cl- or the clarity and the emptiness of your own awareness. So identify that luminosity, that emptiness of your own awareness, and then just stay there and sustain that awareness. Don't tell me you can't do this. And he returned to this again and again, verse after verse. Hey, just do it. Don't tell me you can't do it. What do you mean you can't do it? Just focus on the luminosity and, cl- and cognizance of your own awareness, luminosity and emptiness of your own awareness, and just just rest there in that cognizance. Don't tell me you can't do it. You know. So I'm like, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> you know? There was no reference to pointing out instructions. It was, here's the instructions, and now do it, and then see how deeply it takes you. In other words, there are two routes here. One is to have the helping hand of a highly realized master giving you a point now, pointing out instructions such that right there on the spot, but while you're receiving the teachings from the master, you have this opening in the clouds, some real taste of rikpa, and then you, to the best of your ability, sustain that awareness as much as you can, day and night, continuously. And then you're a Dzogchen practitioner. That's a possibility. Of course, to do that, if your mind falls back into the old habitual patterns of reifying your mind, your own mind, or reifying appearances into chunky objects out there, that's just like throwing mud all over it. That will obscure. Because that's utterly incompatible with sustaining awareness of Rigpa. You cannot do both at the same time. So that's a problem. So if you have not really, if you don't have any taste of emptiness, you no realization of emptiness, then you do have a big taste of reification of grasping onto true existence, which means you're not going to be able to sustain that awareness. The Lama may give it to you a little break in the clouds, and your delusion will cover cover it right back up again. So that's one way you can lose it. And the other way you can lose it is if you really don't have much stability or vividness of attention then just the OCDD will kick in. And you'll be going, awareness, awareness. Oh, by the way, what are you going to do for shopping? And then you're going to completely lost it because it's been drowned out by all the noise in your mind. And so if you don't have shamatha, then how are you possibly going to sustain this day and night? Which, that's the instructions. Don't do anything. Now do not waver from. Sustain an ongoing awareness of this rikpa and do nothing else. Well, if you have no shamatha, how are you going to do that? You can't even focus on ice cream day and night. You can't focus on anything day and night because your mind's unstable. So, but coming back to the practice, and that is it's not it's not necessary to have the pointing out instructions. Another way is to simply receive the teachings, like on Shapka's text, it's a classic text, The Flight of the Garuda, Kadim Shoklap. Receive the text, get the commentary on it, you may not have any great revelation, any great breakthrough while you're getting the teachings, but then you've got those teachings and you take them home, and then you practice. Now, what Yantanamuchi commented here is all right, what are you what are you sustaining? Where are you resting your awareness? And again it's Seltong. Luminosity or clarity, 
two translations of the same term, sal, and dong is emptiness, the, the, lumin the luminosity and the emptiness of your own awareness. Now, what does that mean? I mean, the words are easy. You know, luminous, yeah, these halogen lamps are quite luminous. Yeah, got that? Okay, got luminous, it got luminous. Now, empty? Yep, the room up above everybody's heads is empty. Got that? That's empty room above, okay. Luminosity and emptiness, got it. Okay? That may not be work. That may not be sufficient. One needs to know what is the meaning of these terms when it comes to emptiness. Luminous and clear? Yeah, but not like the moon or not like a halogen lamp. Empty? Yeah, but not just like an empty room. So what do the words mean in this context? So that when you you really are actually focusing on what was intended, the luminosity and, and the emptiness of your own awareness. Well, in this regard, in this regard, Yandhanamaji said, to understand the meaning of these terms in the context of Vajrayana, or specifically Dzogchen, he said, you really must understand the meaning of form and emptiness in the Sutrayana. Form and emptiness, exactly as in the Heart Sutra. Emptiness is form, form is emptiness. Apart from form, there is no emptiness. Apart from emptiness, there is no form. In other words, the non-duality of form and emptiness. Oh, does that ring a bell? Form, what is that? The display of the luminosity of awareness. Emptiness is emptiness. It's always emptiness. So he says, if you don't understand the meaning of emptiness and form in the Sutrayana, then there's no way you're going to get it and get the meaning up in the Vajrayana or Dzogchen. So you must have that Sutrayana basis. You must have that understanding. That's what he said. So that's why I'm quoting him. Because my, my words have no heaviness. But this man, really, boy, does he know the deep thought. My own teacher, Gatran Bhutsu, said, Oh, Yandran Bhutsu, he's a chief Shamadu, he's a chief Vipassana Dzogchen master. Okay? There it is. My little grandson, my six-year-old grandson, just a few weeks ago, He's up there receiving a whole bunch of from at the age of six. And he went to my teacher, Yatranabhaji, and he said, Yang can can Yang can he can he alter matter with his mind? And Yatranabhaji said, Yes he can. Yeah. So a man of that significance, of that import. So one must understand the meaning of this luminosity and emptiness in Dzogchen context. For that, understand the meaning of emptiness is form, form is emptiness in the Sutrayana context. And then just a few days ago, especially the, the students from Mexico, you know, His Holiness Dalai Lama was teaching, giving lectures, both in Monterrey and I think in Mexico City also. So I had my spies. And my spies told me the essence of what he taught. And a major message that came through was in order to practice Vajrayana, you really must have a firm foundation in Mahayana. And in order to, to really practice Mahayana, you must have a firm foundation in the Shravagayana, the basic yana. Basic yana. Ethics, samadhi, wisdom, and he especially emphasized shamatha. So that was just very recent teachings. So if we follow this trajectory and come back, Let's, well, let's go to the top of the mountain first. Here it is. The practice is so simple. And Shapkaramich is saying, is, Hey, don't tell me you can't do it. What do you mean you can't do it? Hey, it's right here. You can do it. Just do it. 
Don't tell me you can't do it. So, okay, focusing on luminosity and emptiness of the unaware. What is that luminous quality? It's not that mysterious. Not that difficult. In other words, he wasn't saying, here's something incredibly difficult. Why can't you do it, stupid? He was saying, here's something in the palm of your hand. Here's something you could be doing. Don't imagine it's more complicated than it is, more difficult than it is. Don't start giving excuses. Oh, but I'm not ready. I'm not ready. The luminosity is actually not that opaque. It's just that sheer... What do you do? Now we start using synonyms. That sheer radiance, but it's not a light. It's that wakefulness, that alertness, that clarity, that brilliance. Consciousness makes manifest all appearances. All appearances are nothing other than the displays of the luminosity of consciousness. So go right into that sheer luminosity, that brightness, that clarity. Clarity also, this term selcha, also has a connotation of transparent. That is, it's not a color. It's not something you can't see through. It's transparent. At the same time, it illuminates. That's not that difficult. And more of you are experiencing it right now, so why shouldn't you be able to attend to it? Then we come to the other side, emptiness. Well, in Chapkaramuchi's text, he gives classic investigation. You find everywhere throughout the Mahamudra and Dzogchen traditions of now probing into investigating terms of the mind arising from moment to moment. Where does it come from? Where does it come from? And then when it's present, how is it present? Does it have shape? Does it have color? Does it have form, location, and so forth? How does it pass? This jungne dosum, arising, presence, and dissolution. Absolutely classic strategy of investigation, especially in the Mahamudra and Dzogchen, the Pashina practices. To realize that it's not really neither the mind nor appearances. Neither the mind nor appearances, appearances being the display, the luminous projection, display, creative expression of consciousness, of awareness, that neither the mind nor the appearances are coming from anywhere, really. There was no place that they were, and then they're coming from there to here. And then once they're here, now we come right back to the mind, to awareness, consciousness itself. Then these classic questions, that they have shape, form, color, and so forth. Of course, nowhere to be found. And then where does it go? Where does it go? It wasn't even here in the first place. So how's it going to go from here to there? And so it's looking at the emptiness of origin, emptiness of its presence when it is there, emptiness of its going anywhere, emptiness all the way through, 100% empty. But we come back to consciousness in the present moment. Is it enough? Is it sufficient just to realize that your awareness, your mind, has no shape, no color, no form. A lot of people don't think it has shape, color, or form anyway. They didn't even need to look. They weren't walking around thinking, I've got a cubic mind. Or, my, oh, really? Mine is spherical. Oh, what color is yours? Mine's yellow. What's yours? Oh, turquoise. Oh. You know, m- probably most people are not walking around with that assumption in the first place. So a lot of people may look at this meditation and say, I already knew that. I guess I already got emptiness. I already understand emptiness. I didn't think it was square. I didn't think it had a center. I didn't think it had a periphery. And so is that all Is that all there is to understanding and being able to ascertain, to sustain the awareness of the emptiness of the mind, to be aware that it's simply devoid of form? Clearly not. 
How about that it's devoid of substance? There's nothing tangible, nothing substantial there. It's not enough either. What does it really mean to say the mind is empty? So then, then for that, then you go back to the Heart Sutra. The Madhyamaka, the middle way view, and so forth. To understand really what is meant by this word shunyata, emptiness. Empty of what? Empty of what? And of course, then we find a common theme between the Sutrayana and the Dzogchen, and that is all phenomena, including the mind, including awareness itself, are all empty of inherent nature, svabhava. So, Dzogchen says, Mahamudra tradition says, Songaba says, Nagarjuna says, and then the great perfection of wisdom sutras say. So, one theme, one emptiness. It's not a, a, a deeper emptiness in Dzogchen or Mahamudra or Vajrayana than it is in the Sutrayana. Emptiness is emptiness. So one might focus on that, really to try to fathom this very deep, the very deep import, the significance, that consciousness itself has no inherent identity, intrinsic existence, essential nature in and of itself, any more than anything else does. It's quite subtle. To realize that, one might want to follow then the Dalai Lama's advice, His Holiness's advice, just recently given in Mexico, and that is to really get that. You might want to go to a coarser level to make sure you have this, because what's very easy, what very easily happens, is if people don't understand the more basic teachings and immediately go to the more subtle ones, Madhyamaka, Mahamudra, Dzogchen, or what have you, not having understood the more basic teachings, they'll think they're understanding something very high, when in fact, They've conflated that with something much cruder. And so, in the, in the foundational teachings, let's call it that, or Shravakayana teachings, where is insight focus? What aspects of reality are the targets, the, the issues of keen interest to liberate the mind, to really serve as antidotes for mental afflictions? Because one thing that's clear to me as a scholar, I'm not much of a scholar, but a little bit, is, and I know a lot of very good scholars, Western and Asian, one thing is very, very clear, is that one may study Madhyamaka philosophy, and the Prajapanamita and the Diamond Cutter Sutra, and so forth and so on. One may study them extensively, learn how to debate, be able to crush other people in debate, memorize texts, have citations you can recite all over the place, have a really good intellectual understanding of, of emptiness, and have none of your understanding even bump into your mental afflictions. Ships passing in the night. You know, it really happens. One, I'll keep this totally anonymous, but in a way so sad. One Tibetan, he was a geshe, so I'll say that much. Tibetan geshe. And I know one of his students, trained with him for years. Extremely smart, very erudite, excellent teacher, New Madhyamaka inside and out. Really clear. All of that. Boy, he really knew the text. He was in charge of a monastery. Some patron came, because the monks in the monastery didn't have much of a place to live. Some patron came, gave them, I think it was $400,000 to build a lodge for the monks so they could have some place to stay. This Madhyamaka expert 
He pocketed it. He pocketed the money. Bought himself a really nice automobile, gave others to his family, you know, 50,000 here, 100,000 there. He's completely swindled everybody. And when the patron came back and said, well, where was the lodge that I paid for with the monks? The guy said, oh, I invested it poorly. Sorry, we lost it all. This is a guy who's, who can teach Madhyamaka, really slick as a whistle, and yet didn't know about lying and stealing, and he's a monk. So I'm, there's no way you can know what I'm talking about, unless you already knew the story, in which case I've not informed you. But that's so sad. My goodness. Years of training. Years of training to get to that kind of knowledge. And didn't even know about the ten non-virtues. As a monk. Oh, that's, that's tragic. So that just showed, yeah, the intellectual understanding there. It wasn't even near. It was like having the target in front of you and then turning your back and shooting the arrows in the opposite direction. You know, they didn't even come near the target. And so this happens easily. I know for myself. I've, I've been trained in that for years myself. And I could see, and I'm something I used to be, something of a debater myself. You know? I memorized a great deal of about one-third of Tsongkhapa's text called The Iron Bow of the Galupas, about the Chittamatra and Mahayamaka system. I memorized 90, 90 pages of that material. And I could, man, I could slap my hands. <laughs> Ooh, sharp. That really, did that really atten attenuate any of my own mental afflictions? So I'm speaking first person. It's not a criticism of the text. It's a magnificent text by a brilliant scholar and contemporary, Tsongkhapa. But it's very easy in that level. Of, let alone if you're a Western scholar and you don't even meditate and you know, you're just studying at arm's length. Then why would anybody believe? And why do you even dream that just by writing you know, academic treatises and articles and so forth about Madhyamaka that this is going to have any impact on your life at all? You may as well be studying you know, geology. So it's no no surprise then when Western academics don't get any benefit. They didn't really go for benefit. They found it intellectually interesting, curious, intriguing, challenging. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But there's no surprise that it doesn't get to their mental afflictions, doesn't act as a remedy. But when it happens even for Buddhist monks, well then clearly something didn't strike the target. So well maybe it's looking at too rare if the, the the mental afflictions are big chunky you know, gorillas, and here's this perfection of wisdom, is that something so subtle, they don't even touch each other. So we come back to the more basic, the passionate teachings, the more basic wisdom teachings. Uh, do you really recognize that which is impermanent as being impermanent? Fathom that one. Really fathom that inside and outside. Impermanence of your body, of your mind, of all of your feelings, all of your relationships, the whole world around you, all your loved ones everything, all momentary, all process of change. All will pass. Wherever there's meeting, there will be parting. Wherever there's acquisition, there will be loss. Wherever there is elevation, there will be coming down. And wherever there's birth, there will be death. Let, that, let those four sink in. And nothing's the same. It's just kind of like, it's a blowtorch to attachment of all sorts. If that's the way things are, then why should I be attached to anything? It's all changing and it's all dissolving. Whatever I got in the 
going to lose it. So why not just take that into account from the beginning? So that's big. That It's hard for that not to hit, hit the target. That strikes home. With everything in our daily lives. Whatever you get, you're going to lose. Whatever you meet, you'll part. Whatever is born will die. Wherever you feel, I'm coming up, I got a PhD, I got this, I got this. So, there's a big one. That really, that really strikes the target. To realize the significance, the whole bandwidth of suffering, to recognize the nature of genuine happiness and all that appears to be happiness, but which is really not outside of the realm of the unsatisfying. To really gain some insight into suffering and the cause of the suffering and genuine happiness and the causes of suffering uh, genuine happiness and the causes of genuine happiness that's revolutionary nothing can be the same if you really get that one if you really internalize it you just everything has to change you can't follow the same way of life it does, the earlier way of life doesn't make any sense anymore it's nuts right because now this is reality based and you see the other one was illusion based to be investing in hedon- the pursuit of hedonic well-being, thinking this is going to deliver the goods. No, it isn't. And so that one's really big. And then, of course, this whole sense of I am, I am autonomous, I am, this is really my body, this is my mind, my thoughts, my emotions, my feelings, and then my acquisitions. And, think, and actually take that at face value. Not investigate it. Not probe inwards. Well, to not do that and then to do it again, it's revolutionary. It just, it really strikes to the core. It hits the bullseye. So I think this is my, must be what his holiness had in mind when he was saying, you know, these foundational insights, these are not trivial. You can call them Hineana insights if you like, but they, they change lives massively. The values, your way of life, your whole way of viewing reality just cannot stand up to those insights. Something Something gives away. Either the insights just shuck off like dead skin and you're back to normal, or your previous polluted way of looking at reality sheds off like dead skin. And then you've got a new set of priorities, a new way of life. You're born again, born again Buddhist. Through insight and not just through faith. So if one goes there, gains some insight into non-self, emptiness of self, on a very coarse level. The courses that the Buddhists speak of in classic philosophical literature, which really strikes home, is starts with a question. Do you have a sense? Do you have a sense that you today and you yesterday are the same person? Is if if you show a, a photo of yourself when you were a kid and somebody says, Boy, you sure were ugly <laughs> I've seen a lot of ugly kids in my time, but that's really an ugly one. You were, you look okay now, but you were really ugly. You were really ugly back then, you know. Do you feel upset or not? Do you feel that was me? Do you feel that little ugly kid? That that's you now? 20, 30, 40 years later? You feel the same person? Right? If somebody, if you're, if you have a photo of yourself holding up a trophy, because you won some prize when you were a kid, and somebody says, oh wow, that, that's amazing, you won that. Now you had a pot belly, and it was for running a really fast race. Oh yes, I used to be really fast, oh, but I like beer now. <laughs> you know, 
Do you still feel that that little kid who could run really quickly and won, you know, won a gold medal or something? You still think you're that, you're that person? Same person? Through time? Same person? Do you think you're permanent? Do you think you're unchanging? Cheek. Da cheek. Do you think you're one person? I just spoke with Katinka. This was a professional conversation and with no secrets divulged, there is such a thing as multiple, multiple personality disorder. So that, I'll just leave it right there. Do you think you're one, do you think you're one personality or do you think you have multiple personalities? <laughs> how many of there, how many of you are there? Are you the same person? Are you one? How could you ever feel bad about yourself then? Because that would imply two. The one who feels bad about the other one. That's already two, right? And so, do you really think, or consider yourself, that there's one nucleus, one self that is real, the real me. I may take on different roles. Here I'm a grandpa, here I'm a stepdad, here I'm a teacher, here I'm a student, here I'm just an eater, and so forth. But beyond all the roles, there's just one of me. Oh yeah? Oh yeah? Where? And then Rawanji, Ta Chi Rawanji, independent. My body changes, it's getting older. But I'm young at heart. My mind is changing, my memory's not quite as good as it used to be. But that's just my memory. I'm the same. Because my mind is changing, my body's changing. But I'm, I stand apart from my body and mind. I have me. You know? I have an iPhone, and I have this, and I have this. I'm somehow independent, so I have some certain autonomy here. So go ahead and disparage my body, disparage my mind, but they're just my body and mind. Do you have a sense of being independent, autonomous? That's the coarse level. That's the coarsest level to ask whether there does exist, whether you exist as unchanging, unitary, and autonomous. That's something practical. There, the, the, the arrow hits the target. To actually put that into daily life and to check. Is there any evidence anywhere? Is there any evidence anywhere that's, that I really am such unchanging, unitary, independent, autonomous? So, the long and the short of this is that to be able to do what Shapkatamuche said, and that is just ascertain the luminosity and the emptiness of your own awareness and rest there. It may take a little work. But it can be done. None of these steps are impossible. It can be done. And then one can ask, all right, let's imagine you've had sufficient training, you kind of get it, you keep on having the arrows strike the target, and they're hitting your mental addictions, they're causing your craving and attachment to, to diminish anger to diminish, arrogance to diminish. They're really striking the target. Right? Such that when you come to the teachings in Dzogchen, on Dzogchen Vipassana, Vipassana, insight, focus on the nature of the mind, and you see that in terms of the mind arising, there's no real arising. It's not really coming from anywhere. Once it's there, nothing to pin down, nothing to grasp onto, nothing really substantially there, nothing inherently there. No real mind anywhere to be found, empty of inherent nature, not just empty of color. And likewise, when it dissolves, what's really dissolving except for the departure of a name? 
But where is there a real mind that is going someplace, dissolving, becoming nothing? Where? Empty in the beginning, empty in the middle, empty in the end. And then as you rest there, imagine you have some, you get some taste. Through your own meditation, even without being able to meet a great master like a Yandana Bajiri, Bingo Kensei, no pointing out instructions. Just resting there. Resting there, as Yandana Bajiri said. Why can't you do it? What do you mean you can't do it? Come on, you can do it. Do it! Right? That kind of, okay, okay. Resting there. Just resting in that sheer luminosity and that sheer emptiness of your own awareness. At that point, as soon as you start practicing, are you already realizing Ritpa? That is, do you get it on the first time? Not necessarily. Does that mean you're practicing incorrectly? Not necessarily. But it does mean you're following a track that will lead to that realization. And you are practicing Dzogchen. So this is very hopeful. That you don't necessarily have to have an incredibly great, highly realized Dzogchen master to be able to become an authentic Dzogchen practitioner. You need authentic teachings, that's for sure, that are clearly and accurately presented. That's for sure. And you should know where they're coming from. They're tracing back to somebody like a Shabgar or a Longchen Rabchamba or a Dujum Lingba, Bema Lingba, and so forth. You should see the source of Padmasambhava himself. You should know the source, you know they're authentic, have a sound understanding, but then you really can practice. So, I'll end on this point, maybe. <laughs> but when the, in the Paninavana Sutta, the Mahapanavana Sutta, when the Buddha's passing away, and I think so many people are wondering, what shall we do? Because here's a man who could give pointing out instructions. Big time. So many times. Bahia was an extraordinary case, but not absolutely exceptional. But the Buddha gave Bahia pointing out instructions on Nirvana. They took maybe three or four minutes. In the scene, let there be just a scene, and heard, let the just the heard, and so forth. It's a short teaching. You memorize it probably in one afternoon. It's short, like two paragraphs. He heard those teachings. He was an arhat. That's pointing out instructions. Not to Rikpa. It's pointing out instructions to Nirvana. He achieved Nirvana. became an arhat. That's direct pointing out. And so many other cases of the Buddha himself and the great arhat disciples of the Buddha. They would give some utterly pithy instruction. Ye dharma hetu prabhava hetum desham dadakato hyavadat Four lines, just about dependent origination. I won't translate, but there are cases where just that would be given and the person would have realization of nirvana right there. One verse, pointing out instructions. So, that was happening during the time of the Buddha. So here's the Buddha now, having taught for 45 years. And he's passing away. And I think a lot of people must have been wondering, when he's gone, there's nobody to replace him. There's nobody that can give those pointing out instructions like the Buddha did. What on earth shall we do? And so a lot of lamentation. And what did the Buddha say? He said, be 
As a lamp unto yourselves, take no external refuge. So it's quite true. When he passed away, there wasn't anybody to replace him. Not Shariputra, not Madhuryayana. They'd already passed away. Not Ananda. No, not even him. There were many Arhats, but there was nobody, nobody like the Buddha. With that teaching capacity, that ability. But nevertheless, he said, be as a lamp unto yourselves, take no external refuge. Strive diligently. And people continued to gain realization of Nirvana become Ahats for generations and generations after him. Even if their teachers were not fully realized themselves. The power of the Dharma, the power of the transmission, the teaching. So this is really good news. Really encouraging this. If the teachings are authentic, that's enough. So as we go to the meditation then, See, this is really wisdom, compassion. This is fusion, wisdom, compassion. Just go to, go to the practice as much as you can, drawing from the depths of your own understanding, your own insight, your own aspirations and yearnings. Arouse this yearning for yourself and be free of suffering, the whole spectrum. The suffering of suffering and the suffering of change, this deepest dimension, the ubiquitous suffering of conditioned phenomena. May I be free suffering and all of its causes, all the way down, and of course the corresponding mental affliction, of course it's delusion, the suffering of change, it was craving and attachment, the blatant suffering is hatred, brought down here, of course it's delusion. Among the three higher training, it's of course it's wisdom. How, what, what else could it be? So wisdom, antidoting, delusion, that is most relevant to, corresponding to this dimension of suffering, therefore the deepest level of compassion, if you can actually arouse that yearning for yourself, that comes from your heart, your innermost heart, that's really liberating itself, already moving you towards liberation. And then if you can take that same impulse, that depth of aspiration for freedom, and you'd extend this to other people, and then to all sentient beings, that's immeasurable compassion. Really transforms. So, let's step in. Let's cultivate compassion. So there's still some hope, Anela. Is there still some hope? She's smiling. I think so. The light hasn't burned out. Settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural state.
and view your own life as if from a panoramic perspective. Not just day by day, episode by episode. View your existence as a sentient being in this universe. And if you have some confidence that the continuum of your own consciousness preceded this life and will follow this life, consider now the significance of freedom from suffering, from all suffering and all causes of suffering. possibility of irreversible and total freedom from latent suffering, the suffering of change, and our existential vulnerability to suffering. Imagine being free forever. And if you can intuitively affirm the truth of the statement that there is a deepest dimension of your own awareness that is primordially pure and naturally free, this pristine awareness, there to be discovered, Symbolically visualize this purity as an orb of radiant white light at your heart. With each in-breath around the yearning, may I be free of all suffering and the inner causes of all suffering. With each in-breath, imagine the darkness of all the suffering you've experienced in the past and to which you are vulnerable in the future, together with their underlying causes. each in-breath, imagine this darkness being drawn into and consumed without trace in the light of your heart. And with each in-breath, imagine this darkness dissipating and imagine becoming free. 
imagine being free. Allowing your awareness to venture into the realm of possibility and attending closely to it. This possibility of freedom. Now direct your awareness outwards where your heart inclines you. To an individual, to someone you know personally, someone you know only by way of the media or indirectly, or a community of individuals. Attend closely. With each in-breath arouses aspiration. May you be free of all suffering, from the causes to the most subtle, and its underlying causes, and practice as before.
can shift your attention at will, focusing where you will. Do not let your respiration become forced. Let it continue to flow in its natural rhythm, effortlessly flowing out, effortlessly flowing in. And if at times you become fatigued or a bit disoriented, then just come back and follow your breath for a while. Stabilize your attention and re return to the practice when you're ready.
And then as if you were settling the mind in its natural state, let your mind free. And simply see who spontaneously comes to mind. From the past to the present, among those who are near and far, Whoever comes to mind, focus not just on the image. By way of the image, focus on the person or the sentient beings, human or non-human. Attend closely and practice as before.
and release all appearances. And to the best of your ability, let your awareness rest in the luminosity of your own awareness, the clarity, the transparency, luminosity and emptiness of your own awareness. So no written questions about shamato or the four measures, just about Vajrabadi, highest level of Vajrayana. So it's a good question. Any questions first though about shamato and the four measures? Meanwhile, as I say in the old movies, meanwhile, meanwhile back at the ranch, it is in your own practice. Is everything clear? Or are you just eager? to hear about Vajrapati. Let's start with Rosa. What's up, Rosa? Um, you just said that the, the mind is empty, right? Yeah. And today we were attending to the space of the mind. Yeah. Um, when I attend to that space, um, sometimes it looks, feels, I don't know, like it ripples, mm-hmm. like there's something like not only thoughts and emotions, but like jello. I don't know. Yeah, so the space of your mind is a luminiferous ether, to use the terminology from, from physics. Whatever appears is simply an appearance in the space of the mind. So if there's a sense of something rippling, something vibrating, something like scintillating, like some energy like that, all of those are appearances arising in the space of the mind. Voila. So whatever appearances arise, 
It's either the space of the mind or it's some other appearance arising in that space. But even the space of the mind is a type of appearance. That's why, and we'll return to this tomorrow morning, when we go to awareness of awareness, that when you're practicing awareness of awareness, you're not even paying attention to the space of the mind. Because even that is a target. Even that is an appearance. Something you can attend to. Withdraw. Even from that. That's the subtlest thing to withdraw from. It makes a smooth segue from settling the mind to awareness of awareness. Okay? Good. Oh yeah, Katinka, way up in front. Two questions. Okay, but I only take one at a time. Yes, yeah. and the first question is when you, we, we, what you have been talking about uh, in Sog Chen, the, what you said about the clarity and the emptiness. Yes. I was wondering when we are doing the awareness of the awareness, yeah. are there any where kind of <laughs> it seems to be some like similarity to the awareness itself that we are there is contacting. there is yeah absolutely um, that's why I feel so confident when I you know having received all transmission and teaching explanation from Gatra Rinpoche and on such a classic text as this natural liberation and Padma Sambhava's teachings I feel so much confidence really wow really deep as he just set this forth step by step first one is just come come into the room and that is, are you aware? Okay, be aware of that. Just there. After first just resting with no object. And that's not open presence. That's no object. Right? And then coming in. Say, okay, do you experience being aware? You step in the door and say, yeah, got it. But he doesn't stop there. He could. And that might be enough. It could really be enough. Just that one step. That could be enough to achieve shamatha in awareness of awareness. Your mind is solving in the substrate consciousness. He could have stopped right there, but he didn't. And I find that very interesting. Is then you're probing inwards. Then, then, he, then this, this oscillation is set up. But it's probing inwards in upon that which is withdrawing and releasing. And then in upon that which is simply observing. And so it's going right into that innermost sense of being aware and being the agent who is aware. And of course, to give away the plot, when you look for the agent, there is a radical not finding. And as they say, that's the best of finding. The not finding is the best of finding. There are parallels in physics. One of the most important ones, really, for the whole history of modern physics, was, and this, this ties back into Rosa, uh, I don't think I've mentioned this in this retreat, but until the 1880s, through the latter middle part, latter part of the 19th century, virtually all physicists, having filled with such awe, such tremendous respect, well-earned respect, in this Newtonian vision of the whole universe, which was a mechanical universe, that things happen by things, one thing bumping into another thing, the laws of dynamics, of mechanics. Uh, and it was well known that light propagating through, through space, displays wave properties, interference patterns. And the wave interference patterns are known, they were very well known 
interference patterns in air, interference patterns in water, how, you know, the, the waves compound, they cancel each other, all of those kind of things. So it was very well known that light was a wave and, it, and that you have intersecting waves and they have interference patterns. So it was almost universally assumed that, as, as an analogy, as in Rosa's experience in meditation, there must be a luminiferous ether. It's almost like these two questions were choreographed. Uh, there must be an ether, some, there must be some medium, some jello, some medium that actually rippled, that pervaded all of space throughout the whole universe. Something that actually rippled, like three-dimensional jello that saturates everything, so that when light propagates, it goes, and all the interference patterns come. There had to be, because Newton, Newton's vision was so incredibly powerful, the explanatory power was so terrific, and combining this with Maxwell's, his four equations that explain all of light, you know, interactions, uh, there just had to be, there were sure there had to be a luminiferous ether. Otherwise, how can you, if there's, if space is just empty, how can you possibly explain that light has interference patterns? There has to be something rippling. Had to be. Until 1887, when two physicists by the name of Michelson Morley designed an extremely ingenious experiment to measure the ether. It was so cunning, really brilliant, sheer experimental physics. And what they found was a not finding. The experiment was so well de- was so well designed that had there been, this is really a strong parallel with Madhyamaka, the Pashtuna, really so close. Had there been a luminous ether, they would have measured it. Because everybody re- agreed that is a slam dunk experiment. Good for you. And then they got to measuring it. It wasn't there. It was a clear absence of any evidence whatsoever. No lumen, no luminous ether. It wasn't just that they didn't find it, but they said in an experiment that had it existed, they would have found it, and they didn't. Therefore, they found that it wasn't there. Therefore, the not finding was a great discovery. It was a finding of an absence. It's a mega, many mega risha, of a simple negation. No luminous ether. Chew on that one. You know, it was insulting to the whole physics community, because they said. I don't know what they said, but something like, crap. Newton works so well, but the luminiferous ether had to be there. And then that opened the way for Einstein. Because if the luminiferous ether had been there, if that had still been believed in, Einstein could not have come up with his theories, special and general relativity. Because that requires there be no luminiferous ether and that means no absolute space, no absolute matter, no absolute time, and no absolute energy. Four absolutes down the drain. All vanished with special special relativity. And then hammered in even more deeply with general relativity, let alone quantum mechanics. So your question was? <laughs> Between the awareness, in the awareness of the... So there we are. The Here's an ingenious experiment. And that is... Somebody, there must be somebody in here controlling the mind. After all, I'm going to look at my eyeglasses. I'm going to look at the iPhone. I'm going to look at the light. I'm going to turn my head right and left, up and down. Left hand, go up, go down. Somebody's got to be controlling. Because otherwise, go down again. Go down further. See, it's red. Somebody's really in charge here. 
and it's me. Otherwise, how can you explain that? You know, there's got to be. And so this ingenious experiment by Padmasambhava, oh yeah, good, look right into it. And then right where that there should be something, there is nothing. And you're discovering an absence, which is not just a not finding, it's a finding of an absence. It's an act of discovery. So in that, first of all, when you're just in that first stage, just being aware of the awareness, being aware of the clarity, the luminosity, the brightness of awareness itself, you're already getting clarity. Because awareness is bright, it illuminates, it makes things manifest. So you can get that in stage one, the luminosity aspect. But being aware, wakefully, brightly, clearly, alertly, being aware of awareness, that's enough. That's enough. But what about the emptiness aspect? And that's where he takes this sledgehammer, crashing through the sense that there's some, really someone or something here that's controlling something or someone here who's really the agent inside who's observing the things over there, crashing through that and saying, not to be found, not to be found. And in that not finding, that finding of the absence, you come up with emptiness. So in those four little strategies, and then we have the expansion, big mind, and then you carry on. Sure, that's a, that's a complete strategy. That's a complete strategy for ascertaining the luminosity and the emptiness of awareness. So, Padmasambhava himself says, this may be sufficient for realizing Rigpa. And Shapkar says, what do you mean you can't do this? Let's do it. So yeah, in the technique we have here, when I, I don't remember exactly, I think I received teaching on natural liberation first. I know I have that from Gautrinamurti and then the the flight of the Guru. But it really struck me, hmm, Shapka's teachings on Dzogchen look an awful lot like, Sh- like Padmasambhava's teachings on Shamadu without a sign. And that's because the Shamadu without a sign can do double duty. But of course, what Shapka gives in his text that you don't find in this one chapter, in this one chapter on Shamadu, in Padmasambhava's teachings, is the view and the conduct. Which then makes it full. So there's the Dzogchen view. Here's the meditation. It looks very, very similar. But then there's a way of life also that is the context, the nest for your meditation. So full and complete Dzogchen practice really must entail view, meditation, and way of life. So there's number one. Second is, um, I don't know how to put it forward, but you were talking about yeah this... Uh, yeah, that we, everything we get, we lose uh, yeah. things going Basically. up and down and all yep. these things. Yep, yep. <laughs> and I think, and it's in a way, it's so obvious. It is. Yeah. Uh, and even even though we continue to kind of fix it in a way, yeah. and I wonder, and one thing is to understand it intellectually. Mm-hmm. Uh, and can do the anal- anal- analysis and see it's that it's hard. empty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's obviously not enough. You have to mm-hmm. experience it on a much deeper yeah. level. That's right. And um, I'm, could you elaborate a little bit on that? Uh, how to. Sure. Well, from my own experience, first of all, before I speak of anybody else, like this Geshe, who is such a fine scholar, but then stole from his own monks. And from the patron who offered out of sheer generosity and stole it for his own stuff. 
Uh, and then my own experience. I mean, you know, studying... I, I certainly do not regard those years of studying as a waste of time, but I do see how many times my arrows did not strike the target. Um, so why? Or as a scholar, you know, when I was a scholar, I was I was a monk for much of the time, and I was a practitioner all the way through. So I never studied just for the sake of study. Nevertheless, either way, whether in a monastic college or a modern university, <coughs> when the study is something you pick up and you put down that's not thoroughly integrated in the whole way of life. Then it's something that tends to be remaining right there at the level of intellect. And you may be talking about it very articulately, very persuasively, brilliantly even. Uh, and it never strikes you. Right? So how to make it work? Well, it's the same thing. And that is that when we're studying, we're learning about Dzogchen, we're learning about Madhyamaka philosophy, perfection of wisdom, teachings and emptiness. That as we're learning, we immediately apply it to practice. We go off to receive a lesson, good, take it back, contemplate it, and put it right into practice. And then in the way of life, that the way of life now is saturated. As we are kind of living a shamatha way of life, we're doing our best. Doing our best, you know? Maybe our best can get better. But trying to be mindful when we're walking, when we're swimming, aware of what's going on in the mind when we're walking off to the dining hall, and so forth. So clearly, if we just sat here for two hours a day, and we just did shamatha vista for two hours a day, and then the other the other sixteen, I said, okay, you're on your own. Uh, there's this Natong beach over there, and then Patong beach over there. You can get a really cool massage down in what's it called, Patong. Patong, you really, they call it a massage with a happy ending. You know? <laughs> That's what they call it. You know? And there's some really good restaurants here and some five-star star, five hotels. So, you know, for the other, oh, if you need to sleep eight, for the other 14 hours a day, enjoy Phuket. This is the hottest, best vacation resort place in all of Asia. So enjoy, and I'll see you two hours a day. You know? Well... <laughs> you know, I think no more commentary needed. Shamatha is going to be just like a little water skimmer that just walks on top of the water and never slips down. And as that's true, it's for shamatha. So is it true for all the wisdom teachings. If you're just studying them, and then the rest of the the rest of the time, there's no meditation, and then your way of life could be that the way of life of a carpenter, an accountant, or a school teacher. And there's nothing wrong with any of those, but it's not it's not a Dzogchen way of life, right? So the whole way of life has to change. The priorities have to change. The meditation has to be there. And the view and all of those have to be thoroughly integrated with each other. And when that happens, then really the change takes place. One, imagine, just to, to turn this around 180 degrees, imagine that one has been raised as a Buddhist, Buddhist worldview. Just comes in with mama's milk. You know, reincarnation, karma, the whole shebang, and you, you know, just, you're totally immersed. You're just raised in a Buddhist way of life, and you're, you're, you know, you're meditating because all your brothers and brothers are tukus, or sisters are tukus, your dad's a tuku. So you're all meditating together, and it's all dharma. And when people talk, they're talking about dharma. And then you go off to a Western university, and you study philosophy, and you study materialistic philosophy. That everything is just matter, and emergent properties of matter, and and you study it. But in the meantime, you're meditating six hours a day and you're living a whole totally Buddhist way of life and all your friends are Buddhists and so forth. But an hour or two a day, you study about, you know, Daniel Dennett and 
these other people, these other people, you know, philosophers and neuroscientists and so forth, everything just matter, everything just matter. We are bright, everything just matter. But you don't practice it, you don't take it seriously, you don't let it influence your priorities, you don't let it touch your lifestyle. You'll never get in. You'll be like dead skin, laid on top of living skin. You know, you'd, you'd never convert. You have to practice materialism. You have to breathe it. You have to live it. You have to prioritize it. You have to focus only on, the, on the, what's material and never practice introspection. Or if you do, persuade yourself you're looking into your brain. You have to really practice materialism to take it seriously. So the three to go together. Whether it's materialistic worldview, materialistic values and practices, and a materialistic way of life, they all support each other. That's transformative. Or the other direction. What's your second one? Oh, yeah. Is that it? That's it. That's it. Okay. Now we have three minutes for Vajrapati. <laughs> so this is from Morgan. Just I don't know where to place you in the room. I know exactly what you look like. Where's Morgan? There you are, Morgan. Thank you. Oh, Lasso. Could you discuss how the Vajra body exists, often translated as the subtle energy body? Is that mental energy, or physical energy, or both? Does your understanding of physics help us understand how it exists? Very subtle question, very deep question. The Vajra body. Subtle energy body. Not quite sure they're the same. Maybe some translators, of course, translators translate differently. Subtle energy body is something that I encountered this, I've encountered many times, but one time that really leaps to mind was 1992, minor life meeting called Sleeping, Dreaming, Dying. It was one of my favorite. And uh, the whole topic of dream yoga came up. Becoming lucid in the dreams, transforming dreams, and so forth. But then His Holiness also addressed a very high level of dream yoga. It's accessible only for people who are really quite accomplished in stage of completion practice. Now, this is straight Galupa, but it doesn't matter. It's the same in Nyingma and so forth. But coming from a Galupa perspective and articulation. And the topic came up. It's come up here a little bit. And that is for such an accomplished practitioner who is a master of dream yoga, but is also really accomplished in the mastery of the subtle energies of the body, the chakras, and so forth, then there's a possibility, and now this is straight from His Holiness, there's a possibility of generating, through your meditative practice, a special dream body. And you generate it. It wasn't there already and discovered it. You generate it. You generate it by the power of your meditation, including visualization. And then, having generated this special dream body, you can actually eject it out from your physical body and send it out in space. Out across the street while you're sleeping. It's a real out-of-body experience. And you are seeing what other people see. It's not just kind of just in your substrate. You're seeing what other people see. And moreover, it seems that really how far you go doesn't make any difference. Whether you go at 100 yards or 10,000 miles, it's just as easy. But you can launch this special dream body out to a distant place, like His Holiness is going to be giving teachings in Dharmsala in December. December 19th to 21, I think. I'd really let go of those teachings, but it's a long way. Well, if I were a accomplished yogi, I'd say, oh, good, I'll just, I'll just sleep during the, I'll, I'll sleep at night, good. 
Night in California is daytime. Good. What's the time? Good. I'll be, and then just go attend, attend the teachings there with your special green bug. You know. So, that's said to be possible. So that's a, that's an energy body. An energy body. What's the nature of that energy? The energy, now I do bring in a little bit of understanding in physics, and we'll wrap it up quickly. It's not any type of energy known to modern physics. Because the energy there is entirely objective, and it's physical, and it's physically detectable. So electromagnetic energy, thermal energy, kinetic energy, energy of the zero point, energy of the vacuum, all of those are physically detectable. But prana is not. Prana is not measurable, at least not by mainstream physics. So it is, it is a type of energy, and in the Buddhist understanding it is physical, but it's not material in the sense that this energy is not composed of particles of matter. But it is energy. And it is physical, and it does occupy space. And it moves through space. So, I'll just leave it at this point. Um, coming back to Dzogchen. But it's not unique to Dzogchen. It's just very clearly elaborated or articulated Dzogchen. Um, and that is the possibility of achieving what's called the Great Transference Rainbow Body which is an energy body. And what that entails is, and we find a parallel in the Galupa teachings, or the, let's say, the highest Yoga Tantra teachings, specifically in Kala Chakra. And it's very clearly, very in great detail laid out, with, with precise detail in Kala Chakra, how through stage of completion practice in, in Kala Chakra, stage of completion, you're actually dissolving, you're dissol making to disappear all of the material constituents of your body, every atom. The atom is being withdrawn. It's dissolved. You're, you're lo- it's, it's the ultimate weight loss program. Because your body is becoming immaterial without dying. It's the, ener- the, the, the matter of the body is dissolving back into the energy of primordial consciousness. And when it's finished, all that's left is called a body of empty form. It's not only empty of inherent nature, which are already already your inherent, empty of inherent nature. This body is empty of materiality, but it still has form, and you can still touch it, as you can touch people in a dream. Right? If, if, if I were dreaming and continue in the dream, I could come out and poke her on the knee, and what it would it would her knee feel like? What her knee would feel like in the waking state? Yeah, yeah. I could poke it, poke her head on the bony part. Does it feel really hard? And absolutely, yes. Is there any materiality there in the dream at all? Zero, absolutely. There's not one molecule in Katina's body as she appears in a dream. But nevertheless, give her a hug, poke her on the knee, she could whack me, and it would feel as physical as anything else, but there's no materiality there, no materiality here. So when you achieve this body of empty form, you can still physically interact, but there is no materiality in your body. In Dzogchen, it's called the Great Transference Rainbow Body. And while you're still alive, the materiality of the body is completely withdrawn. It leaves this luminous shell, so to speak, which is empty, luminous, and yet in a mysterious way tangible, and can interact, does interact, with physical and material phenomena. The boon of achieving that Vajra body, because the term Vajra body has different meanings in different contexts, the boon there is that now you, while still in form, 
you have become deathless. Because this body is unborn. It's nothing other than a display of primordial, the energy of primordial consciousness. And that's unborn. That's unborn. Now, this particular manifestation, yes, that was shaped. But it just shaped out of something that was already there, the energy of primordial consciousness, which is unborn. And therefore, at will, you may simply withdraw that manifestation. But you don't die. There's nothing to die, because all that's left is something unborn. And so this is said to be how Padmasambhava left Tibet. He didn't die. He just withdrew. His work was finished, and then withdrew. But there was no death for him. Because while he was still alive, he was unborn. So, Vimanamitra also, another great Yokshan master. Believe so, yeah. That's what I've heard. Centuries later. Do you remember the century? I think something like 13th. Is that about right? Pretty early. I think it's pretty early. Another Tibetan master. Great transference of the body. Have you heard of any other? I know of those three. Vilna Padmasambhava, Padmasambhava, Andre, ever heard of anybody? Tibet? Great transference of the body. Who? Not rainbow body. Great transference rainbow body. Rainbow body, yes. No question. I mean, to my mind, no question. According to Ben Rinpoche. Again, my opinion doesn't make any difference. The late Ben Rinpoche. I was translating for him a few, just a few years ago. In Los Angeles. A few years, maybe. Five or ten. He said he knew to his own certain knowledge of six cases during his lifetime in Tibet of people achieving rainbow body. But what he's referring to is not great transference rainbow body. It's when they die, the body dissolves into shimmering lights and leaves the hair and nails behind. He said, I know for certainty, six cases, about one every ten years. So, yeah. But that's a lower manifestation. Great transference rainbow body, there's no hair or nails to leave behind. So, I don't know of only three cases, rather rare. Rather rare. Uh, rainbow body, not that rare. Really, not that rare. Not that rare. Not not before the Chinese invasion and even after the occupation and the genocide. Still cases over the last 60 years of people achieving. Quite extraordinary, considering that you know, they were crushed as a contemplative society. So there it is. So something of that sort. So when I was a kid, I was a real achiever. I always wanted to get A's on all of my exams. A minus was a bummer. So, better than A is A+, plus, I think. So if you want an A+, plus, aspire to great transference rainbow body. That's an A+. Plus. Okay. And that will rock the physics world. Achieve great transference rainbow body and flaunt your stuff. Go off to MIT and flaunt your stuff and rock their world. Oh yeah, all in good time. But right now, it's time for dinner. Enjoy your meal. I'll see you tomorrow.